Good morning. Well, it is a real privilege to be here talking to all of you. Uh, I know a lot of you, I uh, used to, my dad is the uh, pastor over at New Hope, so I know a lot of you uh, from over there, although it's kind of weird. I was looking through photo albums with Elena uh, yesterday and realizing that I was 13 when I moved to Wisconsin. So I've known uh, most of you for almost 16 years. Uh, so it is really exciting to be here uh, speaking to you today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you would open up with me to Mark chapter 16, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 6. We're not going that far. Mark chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 30. Mark chapter 6, we're kind of jumping into the middle of the book here. Uh, one of the major, two of the major themes of Mark that will play into what we'll talk about today. Um, the first uh, half of the book of Mark answers the question, who is Jesus? Uh, trying to prove to us that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah. Uh, and that will play into what we talk about today. The other theme is that in the book of Mark, uh, the disciples are idiots. Uh, and Mark has no qualms about saying that. Uh, he makes the disciples look foolish from the very beginning all the way to the very end. Um, but it's, it's that foolishness of the disciples that reminds us how foolish we are and how desperately we need Christ. Uh, but we're going to see both of those displayed in this passage today. Who is Jesus and uh, the foolishness of the disciples? So Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus, and they told him all that they had done and taught. At the beginning of chapter 6, they've been sent on a missionary journey. So this is them coming back from that missionary journey. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? He said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. They took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and went terrified. But he immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege, the opportunity that we have to study your word. 
that you've not left us in the dark, but that you have revealed yourself to us in written form. And so we pray, Lord, that as we study this passage, that you would reveal yourself, that you would uh, illumine our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit to understand what has been written here, and that by your grace you would enable us then to apply it to our lives. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would hear you speaking through this passage. For it's your name we pray. Amen. Uh, My wife Michelle and I are big fans of reality television. I'm sure many of you are too. You know, there's been a whole host of, uh, of new reality television shows. Our favorite is Survivor, but maybe you like Big Brother or uh, The Biggest Loser. Uh, there's thousands of them. Hell's Kitchen, if you like cooking. Uh, there's even one Cupcake Wars. Uh, reality television has become this big phenomenon, but it's actually not that new of a thing. Uh, reality television has actually been around since the 80s, although we really stop and think about it. There is a form of reality television that has always existed as video recordings of live events. Uh, Probably the most famous one is America's Funniest Home Videos. That's reality television at its finest. It's actually entering its 21st season. It started actually way back in the 1990s. Uh, It is, it's reality television. America's Funniest Home Videos produced America's Funniest People, and then we had America's Funniest Pets, When Animals Attack, Greatest Disasters, and it's, it's kind of degraded now into uh, more painful things than just humorous. One of my favorites is Whacked Out Sports Videos. Uh, whacked Out Sports Videos is basically what goes wrong in the world of sports. Uh, you know, people, uh, cars crashing, people tripping, people falling, people wiping out. You know, it's all the worst sports accidents that could possibly happen. Uh, just recently, though, I saw a Spanish version of it. In, in Spanish, they call it rompiendo los limites, which translates as breaking the limits. But when I stopped and thought about that title, that's, that's really that's a kind of a poor title for the show because nobody's breaking any limits. If anything, the people are being broken by the limits. You're seeing the limits of gravity displayed. You're seeing the limits of human common sense a lot of times. There's really no breaking of limits. After watching that show for half an hour, you wouldn't walk away thinking, oh, the limits have been broken. You'd walk away more convinced than ever that the limits are firmly established and cannot be broken. There are limits to what human beings can do when it comes to sports. And not just sports. There are limits in our world that we simply cannot break. There are limits to what we can do. And it can be discouraging sometimes, even humiliating to utter those words, I can't. It seems very un-American to admit that I cannot do something, that I have limits. We all have limits, whether it be not having any athletic ability. Some of us have no singing ability. Some of us lack the ability to learn another language. Some of us lack the ability to learn our own language. We have limits. Some limits are more serious than that. Some of us can't defeat a certain sickness or allergy. Some of us can't seem to get the jobs that other people can. Some of us have the limits of not being able to have children. All of us, from the youngest to the oldest, have limits. There are things we simply cannot do. And those limits can be painful. Sometimes we just try to ignore them. We try to pretend they don't exist. Our passage this morning is about limits. 
the disciples encountered limits. But it's in the midst of encountering those limits that they are brought face to face with Jesus Christ, the one who has no limits. And they're reminded again and again of their need to look to him in faith. So what I want to do this morning is look at the limits that the disciples had as a reminder to us of our own limits so that we too can look in faith to Christ. The first limit that I want to talk about is in verse 31 of chapter 6. And it's the, it's the, the requirement of rest. The disciples had just come back from a missionary journey. They're excited about everything that has taken place. They've seen demons cast out. They've seen people repent. They've seen amazing things. And then in verse 31, Jesus says to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Mark tells us that this was necessary because the disciples were so busy they hadn't even had a chance to eat. They needed an opportunity to take a break. They were exhausted. Even though they were excited, they were exhausted, they were hungry, and Jesus says, let's take a break. There were physical limits on these disciples, physical limits that required them to rest. And it's not even just true of the disciples, it's also true of Jesus Christ. He, too, would often go off by himself to take a break. At the end of chapter 6, right before he walks on water, he's actually up in the mountains taking a break. He's resting. When uh, Jacob's well, which this church is named after, when Jesus is at Jacob's well with the Samaritan woman, he's there in the middle of the day taking a break. He was on a journey and his disciples were off getting food. Jesus once cursed a fig tree because he was hungry. He needed a break. He needed food. And the fig tree didn't offer any food. Jesus once commented also that he needed a place to lay his head, implying that there was a time that Jesus actually slept. Jesus, even in human form, had physical limits. We all do. Every human being has a physical limit, a need to rest. And so Jesus, caring for his disciples, says, come on, let's go take a break. Unfortunately, as we'll see in just a moment, the people get there ahead of them and they never get that break. But Mark tells us that they took a boat to their desolate place, so perhaps they got to rest in the boat. But the fact is that Jesus recognized the fact that they needed a break. They needed to rest. And the same is true of all of us. Whether you're pastors or missionaries like the disciples, or craftsmen, or fathers and mothers, or students, we all need a rest. We all need a break. And God was well aware of that when he created us as humans because he created a Sabbath day. He created a day for us to rest, a day that Jesus said earlier in, in Mark was actually made specifically for humans. God created this day, the Lord's day, for us to take a break, to take a physical break, to rest. We were created with this need for rest. The disciples had it, Jesus had it, and we had it. We need to rest. But the reality is that we often don't want to admit that we need a rest, we don't want to admit that we need a break. We think of Sunday as another day of work. It's another opportunity for me to get all the things done that I wasn't able to get done earlier in the week. It's another opportunity for me to catch up on things that were left undone. But Sunday exists because we have limits. There are limits to the amount of energy that I have to make it through the week. I need a break. There's a limit to the amount of sleep that I'm able to get. Sometimes I need a nap. There are limits to what I can do. 
And it may seem lazy for us then to take a break on Sunday and simply relax and spend time with family, but that's exactly what God has created this day for. It seems as though we're putting things off. There's things to do. Leaves need raked. Money needs to be earned. But that's the way God designed it. He designed a day for us to rest. He was caring for us. I mean, consider the fact that here is Jesus with his disciples. These disciples have been trained as missionaries. They have been trained to be sent out to minister to people And Jesus is actually taking them away from the very people that they were meant to be ministering to. He says, we're going to go away from people for a while and rest. Yes, you were trained as missionaries, but you need to take a break. He was helping them avoid burning out. We get so caught up in doing great things and doing ministry, things that we know are good, things that we know are beneficial. But we get so caught up in that, we forget to rest. We overextend ourselves. We're trying to do so many great things that we never stop and take a break. And yet Jesus is looking out for his disciples. He looks out for them and he makes sure that they take an opportunity to rest. That's what this day was created for. We require a physical rest. So today's the Lord's Day. Let's rest. Let's take a break. That's why God created this day. But it's not just physical rest that the disciples required. They also required a spiritual rest. That phrase that Jesus says in verse 31, come away by yourselves and rest, sounds very similar both in English and in Greek to Matthew 11, where Jesus says, come away and rest, all you who are heavy burdened. Come away and rest, all you who weary, and I will give you rest. The disciples needed not only to recharge physically, they also needed to recharge spiritually. They needed to spend time alone with Christ. And this, too, is a pattern that Jesus himself illustrates. Jesus, as the Son of God, still needed time to be refreshed spiritually by spending time with his Father. Repeatedly throughout the book of Mark, we find Jesus spending time by himself in prayer. Mark chapter 1, again at the end of Mark chapter 6, Jesus is going off by himself to pray. To recharge spiritually. Even he needed to be refreshed. And that's the argument that the writer of Hebrews makes in Hebrews chapter 4. When he talks about the Sabbath day. He says the Sabbath day exists as a day for us to rest physically. But it's also a pointer to the fact that we need to rest spiritually. We need to rest in Christ. The Lord's day is created as a stopping point. An opportunity for us to take a break from all distractions and reflect on the fact that we need spiritual rest in Christ. In Christ, we rest from our works because Christ has done the work on our behalf. We are resting in Christ, in his work on our behalf. We're resting in his righteousness. And as we gather each Lord's Day, we're not only reflecting on the rest that we have now in Christ, But we're also reflecting on the rest that we will have someday in Christ, when we will rest both physically and spiritually. The writer of Hebrews says there remains a spiritual day of rest for the people of God, a spiritual Sabbath day, an eternity of the Sabbath, when we will be forever with God, resting in Christ. But we also gather each day on the each week on the Lord's Day to rest spiritually as we examine the fact that God continues to give us what we need spiritually. 
We come here on a Sunday morning also to be recharged, to be given the spiritual energy that we need. We come here to be rejuvenated, to be refreshed, to be given what we need to go about our week. We come to receive God's grace as he offers it to us both in Scripture and his word and also in the sacrament, which we'll partake of in just a moment. The temptation for us as Christians is to receive the new life that God gives us, but then we assume it's up to us to actually live it out. That God has given me new life, but now I've just got to pull myself up by the bootstraps and live this Christian life. But the fact is that God gives us the spiritual energy necessary to live the Christian life. That's why we gather here on a Sunday morning, to encourage one another, to receive the spiritual energy that he gives us. We need Christ. We need the spiritual energy that he gives us. When we come, we're resting in him, not just resting from the fact that we no longer have to work to earn our salvation, that Christ has earned it for us. But we also come resting in Christ, that Christ is the one who provides for us and enables us, gives us the power necessary to live for him. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, uh, in in verse 30, all that they have done and taught... I think that's, that's somewhat ironic, all that they had done. They had to have recognized the fact that in this missionary journey, it wasn't just their power, but that it was Christ's power working through them. I think that's almost an ironic statement by Mark, because it wasn't just their energy, it was Christ's energy working through them. They needed then to come and to rest, to spend time away with Christ, receiving that spiritual energy. And the same is true of us. We need to come here together on a Sunday morning on the Lord's Day to rest not only physically, but also to rest spiritually. It's as though Christ is saying, come to me and rest. Come and receive my grace that I'm offering to you. Come and receive what I can give you, the spiritual energy that I can give you. You cannot do it on your own. You'll just burn out. At Cornerstone, uh, we serve coffee, similar to the way you guys do on a Sunday morning. Uh, the issue at Cornerstone, though, is that we have a, a two-level church, and the coffee is in the basement, and uh, the sanctuary is upstairs. So several of us will show up early on a Sunday morning and make the coffee, and then we will all drink the coffee. The problem is we all go upstairs and we leave the coffee pot on, which wouldn't be an issue if we would ever remember to go downstairs and turn the coffee pot back off, but we rarely remember that. So usually by about Tuesday or Wednesday, there's this aroma of burning coffee that begins to fill our building. And that becomes the reminder then to go downstairs and turn off all the coffee pots. But by that time, all the coffee has burned out of the coffee pot. And all that's left on the bottom is this charred mess of what used to be coffee. It's just caked onto the bottom of that coffee pot. And if we were, you know, if we left it long enough, I suppose that that coffee pot would actually become damaged, that it would eventually burn so much that it would crack, uh, that it could be charred beyond cleaning. Uh, It could actually damage the coffee pot itself. You have to continue to put coffee in it if you're going to heat it. In many ways, we as Christians are like that coffee pot. We need the spiritual energy that God has given us. And as we face the heat of this world, the temptations that arise, the different obstacles that we face, our spiritual energy begins to be exhausted. And if we're not coming and resting in Christ and receiving more grace from him, 
eventually we begin to burn out and our coffee burns off and all that we're left with is a charred mess. Our coffee pot begins to be damaged. We begin to be damaged. We need to be coming constantly to Christ saying, refill me, refresh me, give me the grace that I need. Otherwise, many times we end up falling into sin and we stumble, we struggle, it becomes difficult. And we're struggling and wondering why, why am I being damaged? Why is this so difficult? And the answer is pretty obvious. There's nothing left in your coffee pot. You're just damaging yourself. You need to come to Christ. You need to come away and say, refill me, refuel me, give me that spiritual energy that I need. We need to be coming to Christ, not just to rest physically, but also to rest spiritually. We're coming and we're saying, I can't do it. It is impossible. I cannot do this on my own unless you give me the energy necessary. I need your grace. Please refill me. And Christ says, come away, come with me and rest and let me give you my grace. Let me give you what you need. Again, it can be difficult to admit that we have limits, that we can't do it spiritually. We want to give up that extra hour of sleep maybe to not come to church on a Sunday morning. Or maybe we don't want to give up an evening to go to another community group. We're so busy like Martha trying to get things done that we forget to be like Mary and sit at Christ's feet and say, please give me that grace that I need. So we need to rest. Resting physically on this, the Lord's Day, but also resting spiritually. Accepting the grace from Christ that he offers. We need to go away with Christ and rest. We need to rest not relying on our own spiritual energy, but looking to Christ in faith for the spiritual energy, relying on his grace given to us in the word, engaging here in worship, encouraging one another as we come together to fellowship. God has provided for us both physically and spiritually, and we need to take advantage of that, resting in him. But not only did the disciples face the, uh, the limit of requiring rest, they also faced the limit of running out of resources. Uh, later on in uh, chapter 6, as they're, as they're finally reaching their resting place, all the crowds have come ahead and have met them there, and they realize they need something to eat. And they're kind of at wit's end. If you look at verse uh, 35, the disciples recognize that they have a problem. They say, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. And then they have a solution. These people are hungry. Let's send them away. Let's send them away. They can go get food on their own. I think the irony of this passage and the irony of Jesus' response is that Jesus already has a sense of what he's going to do. But I think this passage demonstrates that Jesus has a sense of humor because I think he messes with the disciples here on purpose simply to illustrate the fact that they have run out of everything they possibly need to fix this problem. Because look at what he says to them. In verse 37, he says, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Again, I think it's almost ironic. Here they come back from their missionary journey and they tell Jesus everything that they have done. And he says, well, fine, you give them something to eat. Now, I don't think the disciples really thought that everything on the missionary journey was what they had done. And I don't think that Jesus feels slighted in the least that that's their word choice. But I think that as Mark writes this passage, I think he deliberately says what they had done and then Jesus' statement of, you give them something to eat, 
just to further illustrate and bring out the fact that they didn't have anything to do with the missionary journey and they don't have any food to give them to eat. And Jesus knew that. He'd come over on the boat with them. So why does he say to them, go see how much food we have? I'm not even sure why the disciples go and check. There's 5,000 people there. They came over on a boat. Did you see enough food in the boat for 5,000 people? I mean, I would think these are professional fishermen. They have a pretty good idea of what they have in their boat. So why do they even bother to go and check? Did you see us towing another boat of food? Did you see us all with boxes and boxes of food? They know they don't have enough food. They come back and they say, no, we don't have enough food. We've got five loaves and two fish. Again, they're saying to Jesus, we don't have enough. I think they finally got it. They don't have enough. They have run out of resources. They are at wit's end and there's nothing that they can do. But there is something that Jesus can do because Jesus hasn't run out of resources. In fact, he takes that five loaves of bread and that two fish and he turns it into so much food, there are actually 12 baskets of food left over. And not only that, Mark says that everybody ate and was satisfied. This isn't just everybody had a sample or a little taste or a snack to hold them over until dinner later. They actually ate a full meal of bread and fish. 5,000 men. That doesn't even include the women and children. There might have been close to 15,000, 20,000 people on that hillside. And they all ate. Every single one of them ate and was satisfied. They have plenty. And so you would think now that the disciples are reflecting on everything that they've seen from Jesus. This is Mark chapter 6. At this point, they've seen Jesus raise the dead. They've seen Jesus cast out demons repeatedly. They've seen the heavens open when Jesus is baptized and God the Father himself declare, this is my son. They've now seen Jesus feed 15 to 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. You would think by now the disciples have some inkling of who Jesus is. That they would have some idea that, hey, this must be Jesus, the Son of God. I mean, he's told them that. I am the Son of God. So you would think by now they've seen enough evidence to confirm to them this is the Son of God. But the very next story tells us they still haven't figured it out. Jesus sends them on their way back across the Sea of Galilee. He goes up in the mountains to pray. And again, they run out of resources. This time, the wind is against them, so they can't use their sails. They're probably rowing. They're losing strength. They're going so slowly that Jesus walking on the water is moving faster than the boat is. They're, they're at wit's end again. And Jesus calms the storm, gets in the boat, says, it is I, and they're astounded. Literally, they're out of their minds. That's what the word literally means. They're out of their minds. They're amazed. Who is this? And Mark says, they did not understand about the loaves. I think Mark's being polite. Because it's not just that they didn't understand about the loaves. They didn't understand about the loaves and the calming of the storm. And this isn't the first time that Jesus has calmed the storm. Two chapters earlier, he calmed a different storm with them in a boat. So this is the second time. He's raised the dead. He's cast out demons. You would think that by now they've figured it out. And they still haven't figured it out. They still don't know who Jesus is. Who is this? That the wind and the waves obey him. They're still completely clueless as to his identity. They don't know who this is. 
Who is this guy who casts out demons? I mean, just pure logic should have enabled them to figure it out. Cast out demons, raises dead, calms two storms, feeds 5,000 people. How many people do I know that fit that description? Oh, one, the Son of God. They can't figure it out. They have no idea who this is. We, however, are on this side of the resurrection. We have the Holy Spirit, who the disciples did not have at this time, that has enabled us to understand. We know who this is. We know this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know that he has resources beyond measure. He has more than we can imagine. And so it would make sense then that we would look to him in faith when we run out of resources. When we run out of money, that we would look to him to provide. That we would look to him to supply our needs. When we run out of patience, we would look to him for his grace. When we run out of health, that we would look to him to heal. Does this mean that he's going to pour out on us millions of dollars and heal every disease? Of course not. But we look to faith in him that he knows best. Because he's the one who's in control. He's the one who provides as he, as he sees fit. The disciples do one good thing here, although I think they did it accidentally. When they ran out of food, they went to the right person. They went to Jesus. They said, Jesus, we're out of food. Logically, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Jesus didn't have any food. Why would they go to Jesus? But they go to the right person. They say, Jesus, we're out of food. We've run out of resources. And Jesus takes care of it. We need to do the same thing. We need to take it to Jesus. We're convinced many times that we don't have limits, that I can just take care of it myself. I can fix the problem. If I just do this and this, the economy will recover. If I do this and this, the job market will improve. If I do this and this, my sicknesses will go away. I'll have lots of money and life will be great. We're convinced that I can take care of it if I can just do it on my own. And I think Jesus says almost tongue-in-cheek, you fix the economy. You fix the job market. You heal yourself. You figure this out. You feed the people. And then when we realize, no, I can't do it, Then we can come to him in faith and say, I'm out of resources. I can't do it. It's impossible. I don't have what I need. And he says, come to me. Come away with me and rest. Rest in me. Rest in the knowledge that I have the resources. I can take care of this, even if you can't. He has unlimited resources. He's the son of God. And when we finally realize that, we can rest in the knowledge that he's in control that he has enough, that he will do what he sees fit, that he can break whatever limits we think we have, he can break through all of those. He transcends our limits because he has no limits. We need to realize who he is. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is with, with power and supply beyond measure. He is God. He has more than enough. And so we need to rest in him. We rest in him physically in the day that he's provided. We rest in him spiritually in the grace that he offers, admitting that we can't do it on our own, admitting that we need his grace, admitting that we need him to save us. And we rest in him when we don't have the resources, knowing that he's in control. He is the son of God. He is the one in whom we rest. We know who he is. So then let's look to him in faith. Let's look to him in faith alone.
so that we can find resources beyond comprehension and refreshment without end. Let's pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the grace that you have poured out on us. That you give us more than we could ever imagine. That you give us so much more than we could ever ask or think. That you provide for us as you see fit. That you give us both the physical and the spiritual rest that we need. We thank you, but we pray, Lord, then, that you would cause us to look to you in faith. To admit that we cannot break through these limits on our own. To recognize that the limits exist and to look in faith to you to break through them for us. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.